Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, a couple of quick announcements before we get started. On the wall over there posted, but uh, for my discussion over the airwaves, for those who are tuned in electronically, know that the activity code to claim CME credit for today is small s, small a, eight, and a small w. So that gets texted in and you'll get your credit for CME attendance for today. We're uh, delighted to have Dr. Betancourt with us today. And he will be introduced in a moment by John Butterly, who has had passion in this area for so many years. So it's fitting that John has invited him and will bring him here. Dr. Betancourt has no declared conflicts of interest with today's talk. John is a cardiologist and a full professor in the Department of Medicine and the Dartmouth Institute. He has also taken on recently a major responsibility for educating Argeisel students in cardiovascular physiology, and many of you first-year students are with us today, and we're delighted to have you here. In addition to that, John was recently elected last fall to be the president of the New Hampshire Medical Society, taking a very important role as healthcare is evolving, of course, but bringing it throughout our rural state and, um, and uniting all of us in thinking about uh, where we're all headed. Today, we're headed into a discussion of healthcare disparities, an incredibly important area, and one that our department is also working on. We're delighted, John, to have you introduce Dr. Betancourt to us now. So for any of you who uh, have been following at all issues about disparities in healthcare, then you know that Dr. Betancourt is a man who needs no introduction. So because of that, I thought I'd take a few minutes to tell you about myself. <laughs> but Rich has already done that, so, uh, so I don't need to. I, I just met uh, Dr. Betancourt this morning, just with the, in a 10-minute drive from the Hanover Inn, I could tell what a wonderful, warm human being he is. So if you were to look at his CV, which is too big to go over, you'd understand that it's all real. It's all, it's all there. Um, Dr. Betancourt is an associate professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School, and he practices internal medicine uh, at Massachusetts General Hospital. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland and his medical degree from Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, and did his training in internal medicine at Cornell um, at, at, uh, in New York City. Following that, he completed a Commonwealth Fund Harvard University Fellowship in Minority Health Policy and then went on to get his Master's of Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. He's the founder and director of the Disparities Solutions Center and senior scientist at the Mongan, Mongan Institute for Health Policy at Massachusetts General Hospital. He has over 50 peer-reviewed publications and does a good deal of advising both in uh, the private corporate world as well as the academic world. Uh, and uh, for example, he, uh, he has sat on a number of, uh, of committees at the Institute of Medicine, uh, including the one that produced the landmark report, Unequal Treatment. He sits on some boards, including the Boston Board of Health, and he sits on the board of Trinity Health, which is a major national health care um, facility. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ben. <clears throat> That's so much. It's your Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's a real honor and a pleasure to get a chance to humbly share some uh, work that I'm very passionate about, care deeply about, and uh, I hope that after the end of my presentation, this topic is something you'll think a little bit more about, uh, not only in how you think about health care, but also in how you think about uh, the care that you give and becoming a clinician. So. Um, uh, I thought I'd begin by telling you a little bit more about what I do. You got an introduction. I'm going to put a little bit more meat on the bones and then tell you why I do it and then take us through a bit of a discussion that will hopefully leave you with a couple of practical, actionable things to think about uh, as we try to do something that I think uh, I've been focused on, which is improving quality and achieving equity in healthcare. So as I mentioned, I'm a practicing internist. I spent around 30% of my time practicing primary care internal medicine at Mass General Hospital. Um, direct the Disparity Solution Center. So we founded the Disparity Solution Center in 2000. 
2005. I'm going to tell you a bit about research related to disparities. And really, the Disparity Solution Center grew out of a, a collective sense of impatience. Um, tons of papers being written defining a lot of problems, and not a lot of people working with healthcare systems, hospitals, health plans, health centers to do something about it. So that's the gap that we hope to fill. So we work with organizations across the country to better identify and address disparities in a very hands-on way. <clears throat> so a lot of what I'll share with you comes from our experience working with over 300 individuals, about 150 organizations, uh, and a large leadership program we've developed for healthcare organizations that really care about this work and are doing something to build systems and educate caregivers around this topic. Um, I also direct efforts in multicultural education. We have a broad portfolio of educational activities uh, that aim to teach our doctors, nurses, and frontline staff how to communicate and care for anyone from anywhere at any time at the highest level. And so that's the, the work um, that I do and that is near and dear to my heart. A bit about why I do this work. So I'm, uh, I'll begin with a bit of a story. So I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I grew up in uh, New York City. Uh, grew up in a bilingual, uh, bicultural home. Actually, um, my first experience uh, with healthcare that I can recall uh, takes me back to when I was seven years old, and that's the story I'd like to begin with today. So my grandparents came from Puerto Rico in the late 1950s, settled in uh, Upper uh, Manhattan. My grandfather worked in a bodega, which is like a convenience store that we see in you know different parts of the country, and certainly in, in Spanish Harlem. That's where where he uh, set his roots down in the late 50s. My grandmother worked uh, in the sweatshops, really, you know, we call it the garment district sweatshops in, in midtown Manhattan. And uh, my grandmother had some of the same uh, kind of primary care challenges that we face as caregivers every day. She had bad vascular disease, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, and used to have to see her doctor fairly regularly about every three months or so in New York City. And uh, her English wasn't that great. You'd say her English capacity was simple. The other thing then, I mean, she could kind of defend herself, but she's not fluent in any way. Uh, my parents used to accompany her to the doctor and service her interpreter. But taking you back to when I was seven, uh, there was a morning in around July. Uh, it was summer. Uh, everybody wakes up at home, and everybody realizes that they forgot that, oh, well, my grandma had a doctor's appointment. And so I was brought into the living room and gently told, uh, asked, but really told, that today that was my job. I was going to be my abuela's interpreter for that day. So a couple quick things about that. Number one, um, uh, you know, this situation, although it takes us back some uh, close to 30 some odd years, uh, what we know is that uh, I'll share some research from a survey that we did a couple of years back where we asked residents in their final year of training across the country, over 2000, we published this in, in JAM, I think, in, in the mid-2000s, we asked them, how prepared do you feel you are to care for people of different social and cultural backgrounds? And one of the questions we asked them was, over the course of your training, have you ever used a child under the age of 12 as an interpreter? And just several years back, one in three, uh, still using kids as uh, interpreters. So uh, we still see this as an issue. So I want to reflect a bit on that experience because I'll tell you, um, ki uh, families don't want to put those kids in those situations. Those situations happen out of necessity, not desire first. But second, as one of those kids who was you know, kind of asked or told to do this, a couple of things jumped into my mind. You know, the, the first thing is your value goes up in the family, right? And by that I mean you feel more valuable. And if you're crafty, you know, when asked to do something, you negotiate, right? And so, um, so when my uh, parents brought me in the living room, they said, you know, we'd like you. You will be going to the doctor with your grandma today. Um, we're going to give you a little orientation of what you need to do. And of course, I said, okay, if I do this, can I get a little later bedtime on Friday and a couple extra cartoons on Saturday? So you know, work my negotiations out. Uh, and basically, I was told this. I was say, I was told that when you go into the doctor's office, whatever grandma, whatever what I says, just say it to the doctor. Whatever the doctor says, just say it back to her. And if you don't understand anything, just raise your hand like, you know, like a timeout and just let them know. And I said, sure, you know, no problem. Sounds easy enough. So off we went to the doctor's office. Now, uh, you know, this visit was probably booked for about a half an hour. Uh, she had seen this doctor for quite a while, for, for years, right? It's the first time I was meeting him. Um, but one of the first things that struck me was that despite the language barrier, there was a lot of love in the room. And by that, I mean, he had been able over years to really um, exhibit caring in ways that transcended language and transcended language barrier. And so that stuck with me. And I think about that a lot today and the ways in which we can demonstrate compassion, empathy that transcend the words that comes, come out of our mouths in many ways. And he was able to do that just through you know, his, his persona and the way he, he treated her. Um, the other, uh, so that was the, you know, the, the caring in the room. So they knew each other. And, and I was very impressed by that. So we go in and we sit down. 
And he begins asking her questions, as, as well he should. So he says, you know, a couple of words in Spanish. So he'd say, Senora, how are you feeling today? And I'd translate it, and, and she'd say, Bien, doctor, todo bien, thumbs up. And then he'd ask her another question. So are you taking your medications? Si, doctor, todo bien, thumbs up. And then he'd say, any pain or discomfort? No, doctor, todo bien, thumbs up, wink. Um, you know, uh, I need to adjust your cholesterol medication because it's, uh, I mean, your high blood pressure medication because your blood pressure is a little high. Si, doctor, muy bien, thumbs up, right? So let me just tell you this. Five minutes into the visit, I'm kicking myself for not negotiating for more things because I'm saying this is the easiest job in the world, right? No matter what the doctor asks, my grandmother nods, winks, and says yes. So I've said yes, doctor, 22 times. And at the end of like 10 minutes, he's smiling, she's smiling, we're just about done. And so we finish up. And we start walking out the door. And of course, my biggest concern was making sure that I had done well enough to get what I negotiated for, right? So I look up to my grandma and said, Abuela, como nos fue? How did it go? And she kind of pats me on my head and uh, says, no fue muy bien, which means it went very well. But then I hear her kind of giggle and say kind of under her breath, pero no sé lo que dijo el doctor y no lo voy a hacer. It means I'm not really sure what the doctor said and I'm not sure if I'm going to do it anyway. I'm like, you know, we got 10 more minutes. We can go back in there and try to finish up. Like, you know, that's the day that my career as, a, as an interpreter died. But, but here's the point. Um, here's the point for me that I reflect on a lot. There was no doubt that I was in the room with two people who wanted the same outcome. There was no doubt that he cared about her. There was no doubt that she liked him very much and wanted the same thing. They wanted, you know, he, the, he, you know, he wanted to help her and she wanted to be able to help herself. But things got in the way, despite the best intentions and the most caring that, and all the caring that existed in that room. And as I reflect back, uh, I've learned a lot about that visit. I mean, number one, we are in an era of healthcare right now where we're really focused on shared decision making, patient engagement, patient navigation, bringing patients to the fore as partners in their care. Yet my grandmother, and this is not unique in any way to Puerto Rican grandmothers, I have many, many patients who I take who are that exact patient, the yes doctor patient who view me as an authority figure and feel like they will disappoint me if they ask me questions. I also reflect a lot about a care provider who cared deeply about her, but we've also learned a lot as caregivers that if a patient says yes 22 times, that you know, we have a tool called playback, doesn't take any a lot, doesn't a lot, doesn't take a lot of time, but just say, hey, you know, I've given you a lot of information, I confuse a lot of people. Um, can you just play back what you've understood just to make sure we're on the same page? So I think about that situation as not a lack of caring, but a lack of small opportunities, small items of change, small things, small skills, small ways in which we could have made that a more uh, quality encounter. Now fast forward to me getting you know, the, the good fortune of getting into, into healthcare and training in places like Newark, New Jersey, New York City, where every day I was caring for people of very distinct socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. You know, you're constantly needing to shift gears. And it became crystal clear to me that I was learning this incredible technology and science uh, and, you know, great meds and, and technology and diagnostic tools. But all of that science was worth absolutely nothing if I was unable to have that individual across from me trust me and be willing to cooperate with what I had to offer. And so it is from those sets of experiences that I have uh, tried to dedicate my career quite simply to figure out this. How can we make sure that we are able to provide the highest quality care to anybody who enters this hallway today, regardless of their background, socioeconomic class, race, ethnicity, culture, sexual orientation, gender, and you can name the list of, of characteristics. But how can we make sure that our systems are built to be responsive to the needs of, of people? And how can we make sure as caregivers that we are skilled, particularly in a time of incredible time pressure uh, and all types of transformation, to be able to uh, effectively and efficiently uh, do a little bit better every day around making sure that we deliver the best we have to offer. So that is uh, the, the work that I want to share with you uh, here today. Now, um, the journey I hope to take us on briefly uh, will begin by trying to position this topic within the context of healthcare reform and transformation. I'll talk about that briefly, but I'm going to talk about this issue of disparities, and I'm going to position it within uh, this, the context of healthcare transformation. I, then I'm going to share with you some key lessons that for me as a caregiver were incredibly important that really grow from my experience on the Institute of Medicine uh, committee that I sat on. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a bit. Uh, better part of 10 years ago where I learned a lot about the, the, the real ways in which uh, you know, the barriers that I felt patient, that we learned patients were facing, ways in which I could you know, kind of try to mitigate those challenges or address them. 
and then um, really leave you with a couple things to think about uh, that hopefully you can think about today and, and as you move on in, uh, in your career. So um, I'll begin by saying that this is an incredible uh, time of transformation in healthcare. We are fundamentally changing and building change in the way we are going to compensate uh, caregivers, right? Moving from paying for quantity, so moving from how many patients I saw on Monday, on Tuesday, shall I say, to how well I did in their care. And this is uh, a big focus on value, right? Value in healthcare, eliminating variations, bringing the best science to the table, you know, eliminating waste, uh, improving health outcomes. And so this is high value in a time of healthcare transformation. And we are trying to do three things all at once that have never been done before. Number one, we're trying to increase access to care, getting a lot more people insured. Massachusetts in many ways has led that charge. Uh, and we've learned a lot from that experience, right? We've given a lot of people insurance, but we've also learned that an insurance card does not meaningful access make. We have a lot of people who have insurance but don't have a doc that lives you know, within 50 miles of them. We have a lot of people who have insurance who live in Boston who have to wait four to six weeks for a primary care visit, right? So that is not meaningful access. We've actually seen a lot of what we call healthcare disruptors come into our marketplace in Massachusetts, CVS, Miniclinics, the Walmarts of the world, where individuals could go and grab a gallon of milk and get a strep test, see the price, and be out the door in five minutes. A very, very kind of customer-centered way of addressing healthcare needs. And those disruptions are now leading uh, to disruptions in the way we think about delivering care. And we're focusing a lot on something called the patient-centered medical home, which is trying to be just that, a one-stop shop where you can get what you need, when you need it, as you need it, and can really help guide you through your care. I'll end this part by saying that we thought when we got everybody insured that we would see a real decrease in emergency room utilization. At the end of the day, we saw a small decrease because people had access to some degree, but it has kind of plateaued out over the years. And that's primarily because old habits die hard for many, many people, many who might work two jobs, who are incredibly busy, although it might make sense to us to not sit in the emergency room for 10 hours, to others coming to see me, me referring them for blood work, a specialist, imaging over the course of two weeks, when all they really want to know is can they kind of keep working, are they well enough to stay alive, you know, the emergency room still makes more sense in that case. We're trying to really educate people about what access means, and I think these are the markers we're trying to focus on, right? Emergency room use, avoidable hospitalizations, and linking people to this patient-centered medical homes. We're also focusing on quality, right? So we have all this great science, we really want to focus a lot more on wellness, and you'll hear a lot about population health, this idea that we are now taking data and uh, you know, really focusing on groups of diabetics or groups of individuals with heart failure and trying to give them everything they need to manage their care in populations and in part compensated uh, by that. And then we are trying, and we are, we are uh, you know, subject to a series of pressures to kind of drive towards improved quality access and value. And so, you know, hospitals right now are penalized if patients are readmitted inside 30 days for certain conditions like heart failure, heart attack, or pneumonia. Uh, patient experience, which, you know, before was a nice thing, now there's financial skin in the game. So that's a real focus of healthcare organizations. Patient safety. You know, hospitals don't get paid for falls or wrong side surgery or ulcers, uh, pressure ulcers in the leg. So the, uh, a set of drivers there that push us uh, towards value. Now, what you will see and what I'll highlight later is that many of these drivers and much of this work is very, very, very communication sensitive. And by that I mean when I was doing my training, you know, a, a discharge was, was pretty quick. We gave people some basic information. And, you know, if they came back and they got readmitted, it certainly wasn't a great thing. But, you know, it's kind of this is what we did in, in the time we had. Now tr transitions of care are a great focus. How we send people out, we need to make sure they know, you know, what they have, who to call, what the warning sign is, that they have a visit already set up. It's, it's evolved incredibly. And so this is uh, very exciting. So uh, a couple things I'll say here. Uh, number one, this is causing a lot of stress uh, because we're trying to re-engineer the plane as we fly it. Um, number two, for those of us who care about issues related to social justice and the like, it's fascinating because we are now needing to think more about public health and not just what happens within our four walls. That is hard for many folks who feel like that stuff, I can't control that stuff out of there, but that's where we're headed. And this is the grand experiment. So this is an experiment in progress. It's a very, very exciting time to be in healthcare. So. Um, 
We are doing this in the context of an increasingly diverse America, not just in the New Yorks, the Bostons, the LAs, the Chicagos of the world. We see increasing diversity by, you know, whether it be socioeconomic, whether it be cultural, racial, and like, uh, everywhere we go. Um, and what we also understand is that we have begun to measure health outcomes and way more effective, uh, using way more effective strategies for individuals with different characteristics, right? And so my center, called the Disparity Solution Center, focuses on this idea of disparities, which are quite simply differences in some health outcome or some quality measure based on some characteristic, right? And so there are disparities or differences in health outcomes if you stratify individuals by socioeconomic status, by gender, uh, by race, ethnicity. Uh, now there's more work uh, looking at sexual orientation and gender identity and, and uh, you know, different factors, disability. Um, my center focuses particularly on racial and ethnic disparities, not because it's more important than the others, because I think our goal is to make sure that you know, we're really doing the best for all. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of evidence, uh, very deep evidence, uh, that tells us that this has been a long-standing, very difficult, intractable problem, number one. And number two, these solutions that allow us to think about disparities and addressing the needs of the most vulnerable absolutely and clearly lift all boats. And by that, I mean this is a way to improve health care uh, more generally. So this is what we see. These are racial ethnic disparities in health, diabetes-related death rate, 2014 deaths per 100,000 population. So if you stratify, this is data from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, if you stratify uh, the diabetes-related death rate by race and ethnicity, simply, what you see here is that when benchmarked against the white population, white, black, Hispanic, Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian Pacific Islander, when stratified against the majority population, you see differences in health outcomes, again, benchmarked against the white population. And these are what we call disparities in health or disparities in diabetes. And what you see here is that uh, blacks tend to do significantly less well, as do Hispanic Latinos, as do American Indian, Alaska Natives, compared to their white counterparts. Uh, in this work, Asian Americans perhaps doing a bit better. I could show you data like this for cardiovascular disease, HIV AIDS, infant mortality, cancer, and a series of other conditions, and more often than not, the graphs will look like this. So the issue of disparities are something that's longstanding and something that uh, you know, we're going a long ways to understand. I'll make two quick comments about this slide before I leave. First, we probably know the most about black-white differences in the United States because of the way we've collected data. In many states, we've collected data using two or three categories, white, non-white, or white, black, and other. So our ability to measure our, our state, our city's health, is hindered by our ability to understand who we're caring for and to get more uh, detail. Medicare, and we use the Medicare database for a lot of utilization studies and the like, still doesn't collect other ethnicities uh, to this day. Um, so that's one. Number two, this is a very 30,000-foot look at race and ethnicity, right? So there is incredible diversity within each one of these groups. But there's incredible benefit for as a, as a healthcare organization to understand who you are caring for. I'll give you a quick example here. So um, again, you know, if we think about this bar representing uh, blacks, within this group you could have African Americans who have been here for several generations, recent immigrants from the African continent, or of African descent from the Caribbean, right? So you can't really develop an intervention based on this kind of these national statistics. Understanding who you care for is critical. I'm going to fast forward real quick just to make a point. You know, at Mass General, we have been collecting race, ethnicity, highest level of education, uh, and language of all of our patients since the early 2000s. We stratify all of our quality measures by these characteristics to identify who's not getting, you know, who's not on par as it relates to the quality measure that we report. In one of our health centers in Chelsea, we found that there was significant disparities in the area of diabetes, and we were monitoring these. But all of a sudden, there was a large spike among the white population there, which didn't really kind of make sense. It ran, ran counter to, to our thinking. Because we collected those data points and even subgroups, we saw that at that time, there was a large group of individuals who were identified as white when they were registered at the hospital, but were recent immigrants from the Balkans who didn't speak English, no different than their Latino counterparts to the left or their Somali immigrant counterparts parts to the right. Yet the interventions are absolutely critically different for those individuals. So unless, you know, if we didn't collect that information, we would never be able to look under the hood and better understand uh, that problem. So why do we see these uh, disparities? 
the single largest contributor to these disparities is what we call the social determinants of care, right? So, you know, we were having this conversation on the car ride over. Um, you know, this, the concept that we are able to provide care and not be cognizant of where people live, um, you know, whether they could get food, what they're, you know, whether they live in a safe environment, uh, and, and we could be effective, really, I think, has, uh, many of us have known it for a lot of years, but the financial system, hopefully, will now start to realize that in more substantive ways as we pay more attention to social determinants, right? So what we understand is that certain populations, vulnerable populations, are more likely to be poor, right, more likely to live in environments that are dangerous, uh, more likely to not be able to get foods that help them. So if I, as a caregiver, do what I am taught to do, which is to tell people to eat right and exercise in the couple of minutes I have, yet that individual lives in an environment where there's, it's a food desert, so they can't get fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. If they do exist, they cost more and they're less fresh. Or they live in an environment where there's no sidewalks or it's not safe to walk at night. I am wasting my time by just telling them to eat right and exercise, right? Um, so at the end of the day, what are the small things that I could do? My, my peers get very frustrated because they say, well, I can't change that community out there. But again, this is about small things. I could simply say, you know, this is what exercise doesn't mean a gym. Exercise means taking the stairs. It could be walking around the block. It could be, let's think about ways in which you could use your built space to get your heart rate up. Or eating right, you know, let me point you to somebody on our team who could guide you to farmer's markets that come in and, and have very accessible, fresh fruits and vegetables, those types of things. So those are kind of the small ways in which we can mitigate the impact of social determinants uh, on healthcare in ways that aren't about changing communities, but are about the small things that are within our grasp in the 15 to 20 minutes uh, we have with patients. I mentioned I come from New York City. Um, if you look at Manhattan, and you divide Manhattan and draw a line across 96th Street, north and south, and you look at the asthma prevalence uh, between northern Manhattan and southern Manhattan, it's about seven to eight-fold difference. Why, why do we see that? What's so magical about 96th Street? Right? You literally map the environment above 96th Street and below 96th Street. You see more filling stations, more incinerators, more diesel bus routes, older housing, uh, lower socioeconomic status. Right? So we're never going to solve asthma just by making sure everybody gets an inhaled corticosteroid. At the end of the day, this is going to require public health support. But every little bit counts, I guess, is the point. The next largest contributor to disparities is access to care. All the research tells us underinsured, uninsured, lower quality, no matter what your stripe. That's the bottom line. So if you're depending on an emergency room or underfunded community health center to get what you need, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And we see that, and that contributes to disparities among vulnerable populations without a doubt. As we get people insured, certainly that brings us closer towards uh, addressing some of these issues. Now, the area where I do a lot of work is in the area of racial and ethnic disparities in health care. This is research that is now you know, upwards of 40 to 50 years old that asks some very basic questions, including if you have two patients who today present to the emergency room with chest pain, all things being equal about them except for the color of their skin, will they receive the same quality care, controlling for all the confounders that you might imagine? And the answer uh, that we've seen, or probably hundreds now, maybe even thousands of articles in the peer-reviewed literature, is that actually they may not. Certain patients, based on their race, may be referred less for cardiac catheterization, angioplasty, bypass surgery, cardiology, specialist care. If you have three patients, an African-American, Hispanic, and a white, who present to hospitals around the country with a broken arm or a broken leg, what we see is that minority patients significantly less likely to be pre prescribed the same amount of pain medication for the same exact fracture as their white counterparts. If you have two patients with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis, all things about them being equal except for the color of their skin, we see that uh, individuals of color are significantly less likely to be put on the renal transplantation list and as a result have a higher five-year mortality. I could spend the better part of several hours going through all the research in all the different areas and you see these papers coming out you know, every week uh, you know, on a, on a, almost on a daily basis defining and finding another problem. Um, these are what we call racial ethnic disparities in healthcare. Um, and I bring you now to the Institute of Medicine report on equal treatment. So in about 1999, as these papers were coming out in the New England Journal and JAMA and, and all, you know, all our top journals, um, Congress asked the Institute of Medicine. Institute of Medicine is just a nonprofit, non-governmental organization in Washington, D.C. Uh, it is tasked by Congress to uh, solve uh, 
uh, and provide findings and recommendations on some of our nation's most pressing health care issues, right? So probably the one that has transformed the healthcare system the most in the United States is a report called To Err is Human, which really in the early 2000s said that about 72,000 people die in hospitals due to medical errors. It was shocking, and now, you know, you, you, you can't see a CalStat machine, uh, a CalStat dispenser anywhere, uh, you know, uh, anywhere. I mean, they're across uh, the hospital, hand hygiene has become a, a key issue. Everything that you might think around around safety and medical errors really grew from those sets of recommendations from that Institute of Medicine report. Institute of Medicine report is very well regarded. It's objective. It's not an activist platform. Uh, everything that comes out of there needs to be very well researched. Otherwise, it's not going to be a finding or recommendation. So in 1999, Congress asked the Institute of Medicine, do disparities in health care, that smaller slice, exist? If so, why and what can we do to address them? We understand social factors matter. We understand access matters. But the idea that two people who are exactly the same uh, are getting different care is problematic, and we want to know why that is. So I was on a committee, 15 of us. We studied this issue for a better part of two years, looked at over, at that time, over 800 articles, almost 1,000 articles in the peer-reviewed literature, had testimony from patients, providers, uh, really left no stone unturned. And we said, yes, we actually do see differences in the quality of care that patients receive when you stratify by different characteristics, and when you control for the usual suspects, sicker, poorer, uninsured, those don't explain these differences. Um, we also said that, look, this is a difficult conversation. Why? Because I, we, everyone in healthcare is raised to believe that we're aspiring to give the best we have to offer to anybody, and that we treat all our patients equally. So it's very difficult for us to stomach this data uh, because intention, like where I began with my grandmother's story, does not feel good to us, and it just seems unacceptable. And that is totally correct. But at the end of the day, what we need to understand that we need to take a conversation that's difficult and go from a conversation of does it exist to we know it exists, what we can do, and evolve it to that place and understand that this isn't about blame or pointing fingers. There's no one suspect no one solution, and not unlike what we do with patient safety, where we all engage as partners in care, we work in teams, this is the way we encourage organizations to think about disparities or differences in care. Now, let me share with you a couple things that were incredibly enlightening for me as a caregiver, as a clinician, when I sat through that committee. Now, I did this committee, um, I finished my residency in 97, I was on this committee in 99. So I'd just been in practice for a couple of years. So I'll say I was able to reflect a lot on things I was hearing and, and really learned a lot. And I said, boy, why didn't I learn any of that stuff when I was training? Um, but a couple of things bubbled up, right? Why do we see these disparities in healthcare? Number one, navigation, right? It is incredibly difficult for anybody to navigate the healthcare system. I challenge any of you to pull out your insurance card if you have one and try to figure out you know, who you need to call and you know, all, that, all those complexities at the end of the day. And what we understand is, is that for individuals who have mistrust, who have low health literacy, low general literacy, um, you know, haven't had a lot of experience with the healthcare system because you don't get a manual with your insurance, really, and if you get it, you can't understand it, um, that it is more difficult to really get high-quality care. And so navigation becomes a major problem. And you can imagine along the scale of uh, spectrum of vulnerability, the more vulnerable you are, the more difficult that becomes. That, in many ways, contributes to these disparities because of the social determinants and the other issues I mentioned. So that's a key area of improvement, and we think about that a lot now. The second is communication. Plenty of research to support that when surveyed, minorities at much greater rates feel like they don't understand the doctor, they don't feel like their doctor listened, and they have questions that they didn't feel comfortable asking. I reflect a lot of my grandmother's experience. That wasn't the doctor's fault necessarily that she didn't feel comfortable asking questions, but understanding that might allow for, for creating a safer space to say, hey, you know, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate. Or what questions do you have? Or, you know, I need you to be a partner in, in my care. Particularly in primary care, we have a lot of that luxury, that luxury of seeing people over time, building that safe space. But I think that, that, that research around communication tells us that there are small things we could do, and that communication leads to uh, these uh, disparities in many ways. Any way in which we'd up, we could up our game in that area, I think, chips away at these uh, disparities. Stereotyping. Stereotyping was probably one of the most fascinating parts of what I was able to learn at the Institute of Medicine uh, in the early 2000s. This is basically the science of how we think as caregivers, right? And the idea that we are not immune to making assumptions about others uh, as we are taught that we are. So we are raised in, in healthcare in many ways, to believe that we should have blinders on to characteristics like race. And in fact, we should uh, be taking the signs and the symptoms and apportioning the best care to everybody we see. That is how we're raised, and we take the Hippocratic Oath. So this is, this is who we believe we are and we aspire to be. 
At the end of the day, when we were at the Institute of Medicine, um, we had several individuals who were social cognitive specialists who focused on how human beings think. And as we talked about this, because around the table when you ask people, what do you think lead to disparities, a bunch of reasons were given, uh, but everybody said, look, not me. I don't treat my patients differently. Maybe they do over there. Maybe that hospital does over there. The not me phenomenon is very real because that's the way we're raised. And those experts in, in social cognitive theory say, you know, it's really great, but let's just take a minute to think about how human beings think. And they begin to educate us. They say, you know, we as human beings take information, we put it in folders in our heads. And, you know, when we're faced with a situation, our mind is always looking for shortcuts. Um, you may have read or heard about the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I encourage you to read just one chapter, I think it's chapter six, it focuses on this. That literally in the blink of an eye, our mind is making a predecision uh, in times that we don't know it, don't think we're doing it, don't want to do it, and don't believe we do it, right? And the challenging part about this is this is our gut instinct. And it's very, very helpful for us, but it can also betray us as it relates to how we interact with people and we are not immune to it as caregivers. Right? So, so an example of how it's helpful. Right? So for those of you who are early on in your training, you might walk into a room uh, and uh, you know, need some data before you can really see that a patient's sick or, or, or starting to get sick. Right? Yet for experienced clinicians in the room, after many years of seeing sick patients, you could walk in the room and you don't need a, a smidgen of data. You could just look at the skin, the skin, you could look at the way they're breathing and say this person's crashing, right? That's an incredible talent that's built over time and experience. Your mind internalizes that and gives you those shortcuts, you know, which is incredibly valuable. You know, for those of you who are early on in your training, um, you know, you'll be assigned your first patient to see, right? And you'll go in there and you'll be given four hours to see that patient, or maybe two, right? And you will have learned all these incredible questions, you know, and you're, you've been given a patient that's billed as, you know, as has pneumonia. So you go in there, and you know, your white coat's shiny, and you sit down, and you know, you start asking great questions, you know, and question, and slow, and question, and question. Then you ask about the family history, and you draw like, you know, an ancestry.com family history um, that's just incredibly detailed, and you know, and then, this is a bread and, bread and butter pneumonia, but then you write this note that's like a legal tome, right? It's like, you know, 15 pages and there's differentials 10 deep. It could be this, but this is why I can. This is why. Wonderful. That is part of the learning process, right? But what happens in real life? You'll do that as a first year, and then as a third year, you'll have maybe 45 minutes to see a patient, and, and now you're starting to you know, gain knowledge, and so you're like, I can't ask all those questions. I'm going to focus on this is important. And then, you know, as an intern, you'll have 20-some-odd patients, and you'll see them for 15 minutes, and you haven't gone to the bathroom or eaten for a day, and you know, so you, you know, stress is picked up, and so somebody tells you pneumonia, and you, you know, or fever and cough, and you're like, okay, it's you know, these three things. You have the ability to dig deep. But that's not where your mind is starting. You know, we hear the term, if you hear hooves, think a horse is not zebra. I mean, that's the way we work. So the busier you get, the, the more challenging it is to dig deep, right? And the same goes with how we interact with people, right? So in, in, in many ways, what we find is that we make assumptions about people uh, in, on things we see with our eyes. Race, gender, and age are the top three. And we make assumptions the most, or we stereotype the most, uh, in situations in which we're stressed, under time constraints, and multitasking. Now, I know it's not an environment that any of you uh, work in, right, at, at any one point. Um, but, but this is the reality. And I want to just say two, one quick thing and just tell uh, the, the story about the epiphany for me. The one quick thing is that when the Institute of Medicine report was released and we talked about stereotyping, we surveyed caregivers about this. And 100% of caregivers across the country in large surveys that we did said, I treat all my patients the same. About uh, six months ago, WebMD released a survey, 16,000 physicians across the country around burnout and bias, just to show you how, the, how people are now understanding this better. 42% of physicians now agree that they have biases that impact their care in some way, and, and they range on a variety of different factors. So we've changed the conversation for one, uh, from one that's, you know, you're bad and you need to be fixed, to one of, hey, this is a human condition, but it might have untoward impact on different people. How can we better understand it and realize it? By the way, of all the clinical disciplines, which group, given what I've told you, which group of, clinical, uh, uh, which group of clinicians do you think stereotypes the most or agree to have the most stereotypes? Yeah. Emergency medicine. 62%. Why? Stressed, time constraints, multitasking, high risk. Shortcuts is their life. Move people in, get people out. So, you know, again, and we think about that as a portal for vulnerable populations, and you think this is a real cauldron. So one quick story here, because I, 
as the caregiver struggled in that, as I was hearing this, I was like, still, it's not me. I don't care. It's not me. It's not me. I don't do it. And I began to reflect on uh, situations. I was trying to think of situations in which I might stereotype, right? So, um, you know, the first couple of years after I finished uh, residency, I practiced in New York City at Cornell. Um, about 70% of my patients were Spanish-speaking, incredibly gratifying, loved it. it was a, you know, wonderful patients came from the neighborhood. I grew up in different places, wonderful, right? And uh, a couple years out, we had our first quality measure. It was about October, and we got you know, this notification that we were going to be measured on our administration of flu shots, right, and be given the score and the like. So I said, it sounds good. I'm ready to do it. I'm going to get all, you know, my patients I know have trouble with flu shots, so I'm going to be extra ready. And so that day, my first patient comes in. She's a Latino woman. So, you know, they put guidelines up for us, you know, 72. She had asthma, hypertension, diabetes. I mean, she met guidelines like 10 times, right? And uh, so I had 15 minutes to see her, and I begin. And I say, Senora, tengo la vacuna, se la quiero dar. Pros, cons, this, that, the other. I spend around eight, nine minutes explaining all the details of the flu shot. Uh, at which point I say, so, and she looks at me and she says, no, doctor, no lo quiero, I don't want it. And then I look at my watch, I'm like, man, I got six minutes to cover everything else. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, you know, did you have a bad experience? And then I just went out of time. I said, okay, we'll get you next year. So my next patient comes in. He's a 72-year-old Latino gentleman, um, you know, again, uh, meets guidelines in, in all ways. And he sits down, and I begin. Señor, tengo la vacuna, se la quiero dar, pros, cons, this, that, the other, go through everything. Uh, and I just speak faster. Right? So now I get it down to like seven minutes. And then he looks at me and says, no, doctor, no, no, no lo quiero, I don't want it. I'm like, ah, oh, but did you have that experience? You know, I ask a question. And, and no, okay, okay, well, I'll get you next year. And then my next patient comes in, and she's like a carbon copy of the first. I said, senora, guess what? Today's your lucky day. I have the flu shot, se la quiero dar, pros, cons, the other. I speak even faster. I get it down to five minutes. She looks hesitant. And then I, I, I say to her, you know, I think of something that's like, you know, senora, flu kills, right? So I do a little fear factor in there. And she looks at me and says, no, doctor, no lo quiero. And then my next patient comes in. He's a copy copy of the second. I say, senor, today's your lucky day. I speak really fast. Get it down to five minutes. I say, you know, flu kills. And he's still looking hesitant. I'm like, look, you know, between you and I, have you given a flu shot ever? Let's just do this. I'll give you yours. You give me mine. I just, I haven't, I have not moved a flu shot, a single vaccination out of this fridge. I got to do this. And he says, no, doctor. You know, first he thinks I'm crazy, but then he says, okay, no, doctor, you know, no lo quiero. Right, so that's my first day. And so fast forward, you know, the next month and the next month and the next month, and every day's like that. And in my sleep, I hear, no, doctor, no, look, you know. It's like keeping me up at night, right? And so fast forward to January that year, right? And I sit down, and I'm seeing my 450th Latina patient, and she sits down. How do you think I offered the flu shot to that patient after being rejected 98% of the time? You know, the conversation wasn't, hey, I have a lucky, you know, all that other stuff. It was, hey, I got the flu shot. I know you don't want it, but if you do, you just let me know, and I'm happy to give it to you. Why? Because my mind started to fall into this trap. These patients don't like the flu shot. That makes sense to waste time, focus on the other stuff, right? When perhaps a little bit of a different conversation for that patient would have made an incredible difference. That was my epiphany, that it wasn't about, these are people I care for, want to do well by, spoke their language, that we all need to hear for the term these patients, these kind of well-intentioned step back from quality, where we fall into these traps. Does that make sense to folks? Um, long story, and I, you know, but it's very, very important. I just encourage you to just think about this a little bit more, especially as you uh, are uh, going through training. Finally, mistrust. So um, we understand that trust is absolutely essential to the therapeutic relationship. We also understand that for many reasons, many, many populations are incredibly mistrustful of the healthcare system. Um, people reporting at much greater rates that they feel like they've been treated unfairly in the healthcare system based on their race and ethnicity, and more concerned about being treated unfairly in the future based on their race and ethnicity. So building trust is really critical. So what you see here is that there are, and I'm going to highlight in a few minutes, the, thing, the things we could think about in small ways to address some of the things that are within our control as we try to address some of the bigger issues uh, that are of critical importance uh, to our nation and to our society. So IOM uh, gives us a blueprint, tells us a bunch of things, says have discussions like this, make it evidence-based, collect data, know who your patients are. Think about team-based care. It's not just about doctors and nurses. Think about teams. Engage communities. Educate providers on these things. Educate patients. Help activate them. Study what works. These are the, this is the blueprint that was kicked up in the early 2000s that the nation is trying to execute on. So what have we learned uh, over the course of the last 12 years with the Institute of Medicine report? Well, we've learned from our experience with you know, uh, close to 150 organizations, 
Our hospital took this very, very seriously in 2002. Our, our president said, look, IOM says there are disparities. We're guilty until proven innocent. Let's start to collect data, but let's start to take action immediately. And we've been at this for a while, and you know, we received the nation's first equity of care award from the American Hospital Association in 2014 for our work. So I don't come here kind of reading from papers and telling you what to do. This is real-world observation and experience. At the end of the day, people are slowly but, true, but surely following the blueprint, beginning to collect data, measure their quality by race, ethnicity. We have an annual report. We have about 20 hospitals that are measuring their quality by different characteristics that are important to them. Could be education level, socioeconomic status, gender. They pick, but they're basically starting to better understand people. The use of big data in healthcare is where we're headed. Um, we have interventions that include trying to bridge language gaps, training around health literacy, uh, a large uh, reemergence of community health workers, the emergence of healthcare coaches and navigators, individuals from the community who become our partners, people who can spend a lot more time with patients and really get, at, get under the hood at some of the issues and share it with the caregivers so the team can focus on issues more significantly and a large, significant focus on social factors. Not by me as the caregiver, but on our radar screen as a team. Why? Because it matters. Because if we get measured on diabetes, and we're just focusing on what meds we're giving. We're completely blinded to all the other factors that are so important around those outcomes. So no doubt, these are the types of things we see. And again, as I mentioned, Wall Street Journal even talks about this a year ago, says, you know what? If we're going to do well and live up to our promise of value, it is about the talking cure. It is about communication. Communication matters. These are communication-sensitive issues, transitions, patient experience, you know, adherence. All these factors now have led the healthcare system to be a lot more interested on how we can do better uh, in our interactions with patients. Now the challenge is this. We have tried to figure out how we could better understand our collective, right, our peers, and how we can develop tools and skills that can help people be more effective. So I talked a bit about what systems are doing. Now I'm going to focus more on what we can do and the types of things we can think about. So I referenced this survey that we did in, in 2000 that we published uh, in the mid-2000s that we published in JAMA and that we repeated with uh, 4,000 practicing clinicians across the country. And again, our interest was understanding, hey, how prepared do you feel you are to care for patients of different social and cultural backgrounds? What are the barriers for you? And, you know, what do you think you need? And to, to get a sense because, you know, clearly if you want to engage people in change, we want to know what they're thinking. And so we found a very consistent items in our research. One is that absolutely everybody thinks that social factors and cultural factors matter. Everybody says, yes, I get it. They matter. And everybody absolutely believes that they have an impact on care and outcomes. Everybody says, yes, boy, if you don't focus on this, you know, it leads to longer lengths of stay, readmissions, you know, and the list goes on. Delays obtaining informed consent and the like. How prepared do you feel? I'm pretty good. I feel pretty good. I feel like I can manage these issues pretty well. But then when you ask, okay, how prepared do you feel you are to care for a patient who is, uh, you know, poor and vulnerable? Well, you know, there's challenges there. I feel a little bit less prepared. Not systems issues, but like literally prepared around communication and managing challenges. How prepared do you feel you are caring for a patient who has health beliefs that are at odds with the Western model? You know, one in three unprepared. How prepared do you feel you are in caring for an individual who has uh, spiritual beliefs that might impact their care? Uh, not so prepared. So at the end of the day, what we see is that Kind of globally, you see this in surveying. If you ask a big picture question, people say, I'm good, but you ask more details, they say, yeah, not really. Um, what we also see from our research is that people who have some framework, something to think about, uh, feel better prepared. Yeah, I, I learned this couple of cool tools, I'm able to do them quickly in my encounters, I feel better prepared. And when we ask people, what is the single biggest barrier to being more effective in this area? Without a doubt, without a close second, people say time. It's all about time, I just don't have time. I want to take you back one moment now to my flu shot story, right? Now, for the better part of a year, I had a script that I was thinking about, which is informing the patient, walking them through, and, you know, making sure they understood, and then asking them if they wanted a flu shot. Took me, you know, at my best when I was talking fast, four to five minutes. At my worst, 10 to 12 minutes of a 15-minute visit. My outcomes were terrible, right? Over the course of that year, I struggled with that. And I said, what can I do better? And I learned a lot. My colleagues and I taught ourselves a lot around some key kind of cross-cultural tools. And when I mean cross-cultural tools, I mean crossing the culture between the language we speak as caregivers 
and the language people speak, which is drastically different, right? So I'm not talking about teaching people how to care for the Latino patient, the African-American patient, no. I'm talking about what are the key things that are universal and cross-cultural among all patients, like the yes doctor patient, not unique to the Latina patient, but you know we see that in different populations, that become barriers for us that we can then act upon. We don't need to act upon them for all patients, but they become triggers for us. And so one of the things I learned was you know, a good thing to do is to ask an individual, a patient, their understanding of a condition or a treatment before you go on and explain this thing for 10 minutes, right? So that next year, uh, to demonstrate this idea of time, right, because people think this stuff has to take more time. The next year, my conversations began like this. Hey, I'd like to offer you the flu shot, but before I say another word, do you have any particular fears and concerns about them? Right? And right away, at minute one, I'm having a conversation about, well, I got the flu shot and, you know, my arm hurts, so I don't want it. Or I got the flu shot and, you know, I got the flu and that's why I don't want it. Or, you know, my neighbor uh, down the street, I heard she got the flu shot and her liver blew up and I don't want that. You know, like I don't want, you know, you hear all types of things. But at the end of the day, I wasn't leaving that for minute 10 where I couldn't really even deal with it. And because I just fundamentally changed what I was asking and how I was delivering my information, I got that at minute one. This is an example of the way in which we can think about strategies that can, I think, very clearly help address these issues. And my flu shot rates went way up because those conversations were being had in minute two or three, not being pushed off uh, for another day. And also, I wasn't reifying these stereotypes that these patients don't want the flu shot. Does that make sense to folks? So um, we uh, need to think about a, a couple of quick things um, that I would leave you with. Um, number one. It's important as we think about this work related to communication, and we've done a lot of work in this area, is that there's a real art to this, no doubt, but there's also a science. We need to do a lot of things in a short amount of time. And although we don't want to be cookbook, and that's not what I'm suggesting, frameworks help us, right? Think about the review of systems. Patient presents with a certain condition. We're not asking the entire review of systems of everyone, but if there's a pulmonary complaint, we have a set of questions that we could ask that are the pulmonary review of systems, right? How do we begin to treat other factors in healthcare with that same approach of a review of systems, deploy as needed, but think deeper about some of these factors with the framework, right? So key triggers being an individual not a target, an individual refusing something that could save their lives, um, a person who's, you know, quote unquote, lost a follow-up or, or following up inconsistently, situations like how do we do better around discharge, uh, instructions, medication reconciliation. These are situations that are very, very communication sensitive. And having a framework or a set of things to think about can be incredibly valuable across cultures, right? So there's three areas that we are focusing on in our work and have been doing teaching like this to doctors, nurses, frontline staff, medical students, residents for the better part of 10 years. One is what we call a, kind of this checklist that we developed around cross-cultural care, right? Which is to say, when, a, when I have a patient who's not a target, and they've been explained 32 times about how hypertension is going to kill them, and they've been you know, given five, you know, 10 medications and had the multi-million dollar workup for secondary causes. This, you know, well before that, we hope you could simply ask a patient, hey, you know, hypertension is really tough. It's tough to control. You know, you're having some difficulty. How do you understand your hypertension? Right? Getting at the meaning or understanding of their illness is one key component of this. So it could be meaning of illness or meaning of treatment. And this is built on people who've done this work before. Assessing the core cross-cultural issues are the types of things that we teach that focus on, hey, if you have a styles of communication, very important, vary by, by background, by social, uh, economic background and, and culture. You know, how could you think about that? And if you have a yes doctor patient, how do you then get them to play back what they've understood? There's variations on how people feel around eye contact, you know, touch, uh, uh, you know, handshaking. We're not going to know all that, but at the end of the day, if we enter with some humility and respect and understanding, we can then say, look, this is the way I operate. I'm trying to understand the way you do, and let's find some common ground. And we have a whole series of core cross-cultural issues that include styles of communication, mistrust. I mentioned mistrust before. We teach all our caregivers to ask one question, which is, hey, um, and you do this in the initial visit, I have a quick question for you. Uh, have you ever had a bad healthcare experience I should know about? Right? Just tell me in a, in a couple, just in a couple minutes. Right? This is like an instant litmus test for mistrust. Right? Because I hear a lot of times, well, you know, my last doctor they used to draw all these lab tests, uh, but you know what? Uh, they never send me the results, and I don't know why. Very quickly, I see that's they're viewing the situation through a lens of very legitimate discrimination, perhaps a history of discrimination, a bad experience their uncles had, but that's the lens. It could have been the doctor didn't send letters. I can't explain it. But at the end of the day, by unearthing that. My opportunity is to simply say, you know what, I can't explain that, but this is how you're going to get your lab test. And if you ever have any questions like that, just let me know. 
All the research tells us that patients can mistrust our hospital, other caregivers, our city, our whatever, but that's an opportunity, very simply, uh, to build trust. So that's a key tool that we talk about in assessing core cross-cultural issues. Um, another key area that we talk about is traditions, custom spirituality. We uh, build into our systems the asking of, hey, do you have any spiritual practices or cultural traditions that might impact care, such as not receiving blood, but not wanting to receive blood products or eating particularly salty or sweet foods. It's important, right? If you have a diabetic who's on insulin, who's fasting for prolonged periods and you don't know that, people won't put that on your radar screen. But simply teeing that up gives you an opportunity there. You can use this as a trigger or you can use it as part of your initial history. We also do a lot around the social context, this idea that we are not just going to ask about do you smoke, drink, do you use substances, and are you married or not, and basic things. We think about four key areas, social stressors and supports, environment change, what was healthcare like, where you come from, and, and you know, what are your expectations here, literacy and language, and life control. What can you do? I, I'd like you to do these things, but can you even do them? And then finally, negotiation. We also focus uh, quite a bit on stereotyping, right? Getting people to check their decision making. Think about when they're falling into traps. Um, really double check, uh, you know, what they're hearing, how they're thinking, and then finally, as I mentioned, this idea of trust. Um, being aware of it, simply unearthing it, and then working to provide a focused reassurance. Um, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, this is a lecture in and of itself. Um, this concept of how can we build a, a checklist, an approach to cross-cultural care that helps us take into account core cross-cultural issues to deploy simple questions when there are triggers that get at the patient's understanding of their illness or their treatment, um, to get at the social context in more robust ways, and to negotiate. And we firmly believe that when focused uh, on uh, building trust and kind of preventing stereotypes, this is an approach that will help and improve the care of all patients, not just uh, a select few. So I want to end uh, by telling you simply that this is an issue that is picking up steam, that is gaining incredible attention. Um, there's no doubt that if we really want to be high-performing in a high-value healthcare system, we can slowly, not in an overwhelming fashion, but slowly think about ways in which we can do better. And this isn't just because it's a nice thing to do or you know, the right thing to do. There's a real case to be made from the standpoint of cost, quality, value, and safety um, that pushes us towards doing better in these areas every day. And I firmly believe that health systems, I don't only firmly believe it, we've seen it, that health systems that care can make a difference and so can uh, caregivers. And it doesn't need to take more time and it doesn't need to make our life difficult. It could actually improve our own quality of life as we're able to crack some of the difficult cases that keep us up at night. I thank you so much for your time and I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you. solutions you describe in terms of communication and trust are of necessity quite individual. How do you scale that to large systems? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, you know, a large part of what we do, it's, it's a, it's, this is like, a, you know, almost like, almost like uh, Prochaska's stages of change, right? Which is beginning with kind of pre-contemplation, like I don't, I'm not really even thinking about this, right? So first is really socializing this concept in general. This idea uh, that uh, we want to be aspirational, that equity isn't about you know, good or bad people, that we're trying to aspire to our, to our best selves. Right? Um, and that's fundamentally around racial ethnic disparities. That's been an important, a critically important part of the conversation to move people away from defensiveness to one of engagement. Um, the second is to say, okay, look, uh, we want to do this. Uh, it's not just the right thing to do. We believe it's a smart thing to do, and it's you know, where we want to go. We don't want to burden you with a bunch of extra stuff. Let's think about the situations that are most challenging for you, for all of us, and think about three to four to five small tools that, that we might provide that you might use on an as-needed basis. That moves us towards socializing and a bit more to training. So we have, in, in our work, trained um, 
over using primarily e-learning because you can train a lot of people in a short amount of time with standardized dose of education, teaching tools in small bite-sized pieces, right? Um, trained about 1,500 doctors, uh, 1,500 uh, frontline staff, and seen significant improvements, by the way, in our patient experience as a result of this training. Uh, as we've measured it, as we stratified it by race and ethnicity. You know, in 2004, before we began this work, when we did our patient experience survey, there was a lot of people we didn't hear from because they didn't respond. Uh, and then we actually commissioned surveys to get at some of these issues of trust and the like. And, and as an example, in 2004, 21% uh, of our uh, African-American patients felt like the white patient next to them was getting better care than they were. And we were able to drop that to 6% in 2012. 25% of Latinos felt the same way. We dropped that to 9% because we trained, right? And the idea around training wasn't, hey, this is a training to, to you know, fix you because you're broken. This isn't about, hey, let's all hold hands because we all you know, need to be nice to everybody. No, here's some practical tools. A couple of tools I mentioned. One, question about trust, question about traditions and customs. A lot of focus on meaning of the illness. We've been doing a lot on health literacy. And what we have found is that when done well, not preachy, not kind of, you know, lectury, but case-based, adult learning, teachable moment, these tools become ingrained. And you have a lot of people have these epiphanies that, you know, say, yeah, you know, I start to use, I start to ask, you know, I've started to ask these questions. Boy, I've taken care of this patient now for 10 years, and I never knew he or she thought that their hypertension was worse in circumstance X or circumstance Y, now we have a whole different conversation. So those epiphanies allow us to build sustainability and move us along that kind of stages of change. But really, that's been our approach. It's been slow and steady. It's been one that doesn't aim to overwhelm. And the way we scale has been through training and socialization. Uh, I hope that, to some degree, answers your question. I thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Pettencourt, thanks very much for a great talk. I want to share with you a question that um, <coughs> we've gotten from some of our residents. The, the Department of Medicine has a, um, a, a project for the primary care track residents and also some of the pediatric residents addressing caring for the underserved and looking at social determinants of health, yes. health disparities. And one of the questions that the residents ask me is, how can we, in this area of northern New England, where there's limited ethnic uh, diversity, diversity how can we gain those skills? Um, we, we speak a little bit about cultural humility, as you mentioned also. Um, but I, I was wondering if, if, if you can help us, the medical students and the residents, um, yeah. you know, gain competency when we're not training in, um, in Manhattan. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, and that's a reality. It's a reality for a lot of different places. And first, I would say first that, that we try to really look at this concept of difference and diversity in, in a couple of different prisms. Number one, you know, we speak our own language, we are our own culture, and so there's difference all the time with individuals who are in front of us. That's the first culture we need to cross. But to your point, you know, getting at different truly cultural perspectives, right, is one that really stems from, from having experience with them, right? You can't, you know, you're not going to get that blooper, you're not going to get that manual. So if you have limited experience, um, that becomes uh, challenging. And I think, uh, you know, a key principle behind this, as you mentioned, is entering with the understanding that, look, I'm not going to know everything about you, but I, you know, the social and cultural factors that matter to you and that are important to this encounter are the ones I need to understand. And so we walk this tightrope, right? I'm going to digress for a second. We walk this tightrope between telling people, yes, we want you to learn about communities, very, very important, community factors and the like, but that patient in front of you is an individual, and we don't want you to apply those kind of what you learned about the community to this person because they look a certain way or speak a certain way, right? Because that actually, you know, reifies stereotypes. I was thinking about when we be f first began this work in kind of cross-cultural care, a lot of what we see was books where, you know, on page 15, you'd look up the Latina patient. And it would be uh, Latino patients like it when you're nice to them, when you're respectful, and when you call them, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs., right? And, and I read that, and I'm like, well, you know, a lot of people like it when you're nice to them. A lot of people like it when you're respectful. A lot of people, you know, I mean, those are kind of universal things. Yes, there's, you know, and then you'd also read things like, well, Latinos are fatalistic, you know. And, and I felt like, boy, you know, there's no one page that's going to define any of our families. And, and there's so much diversity there. So that's one key principle. Now, I think today people are very, very fortunate because if they're training in areas where there is a predominance of one or, uh, or another type, I believe that there's an incredible set of opportunities that exist at people's fingertips, and I talk about this a lot, you know, what my kids will have available to them 
for me to be able to do an away elective or to do something at a different place required me to look at a community billboard or find something in the journal. Yet today, at anybody's fingertips, you can find a summer opportunity, summer opportunity somewhere at any time to engage in that type of experience. And I absolutely believe it is critical and valuable. I mean, I, I did that during my residency where I'd spend a couple months working in different places around the world. Um, and also, I think. To be honest, we've seen a lot of programs be very proactive about trying to you know, find that diversity for their residents if it's not immediately in their catchment area. Developing partnerships, you know, sending individuals to different areas just so that they could cut their teeth on, on these issues. So those are two ways I think about it. Some could be your own doing and some could be, you know, can leadership think about creative ways in which we could have partnerships. We just have a, one of our residents, former residents, uh, now faculty, uh, who's Native American, just established a program for residents to go out to a reservation in South Dakota because he thought it w was important. This is something he wanted, he's built now, and that opportunity is available to people. So it's, it's a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, I believe, but also uh, you know, important for leadership to think about. Yes. Uh, sorry. Uh, so I was wondering about those trainings that you were talking about, if they're sort of like a one-and-done kind of thing, or if they are longitudinal, how do you create them you know, so that they're every year without impinging on doctors and residents' time. Absolutely. So this is absolutely not a one and done. And it needs to be, you know, what, when we first started doing this work in e-learning, our programs were, um, you know, about two hours long. And we, we tell people, look, it's, you can do it in multiple sittings and you don't have to do it all once. That was a deal breaker, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, our attention spans are Twitter-like right now, right? So they've gotten a lot less. And so you really need to give people, you know, snippets in, in bite-sized pieces. But it is about a learning pathway. And it is one that begins with the socialization and then says, okay, I'm gonna, let's focus on just a trust tool now and let's look at case-based way in which this could be effective. And so that's the way we build it out. We do it at Harvard Medical School. We do it uh, with our residents. There's a longitudinal way of doing this. And with our providers, we actually have different modules uh, that we do, and we've done this now for several years. And what's interesting is the modules aren't like, there's not one module on this. There's a module for internists, for cardiologists, for surgeons. Because we, we want to use cases that are the type of cases that you see and, and focus on the issues that are the type of challenges that you face to teach you the tools, not you know, give you a hypertension case when you're a surgeon and your biggest struggles are around getting informed consent and people you know, with different perspectives. So that's the way we approach it. Just like any continuous learning, just like you know, I go for additional trainings on how to manage you know, hyperlipidemia, you know, there's, there's an evolving science. We take that same approach. This is an evolving skill set and an evolving science, definitely not a one and done. Again. What we try to do is not say this is this over there. We try to compare it to a lot of the stuff, a lot of things that we do. Review of systems. We think about continuous learning. This is no different. Uh, this is just about aspiring to be better. I think the time. Uh, yep. Not to put a few more minutes, but I do. We do have to. Uh, so one more thing about that is this is the first year we've had the first year of medical students <coughs> medical grand rounds when they're supposed to be in. Uh, lectures on cardiovascular physiology. <laughs> By the way, you're welcome. And this is something that we want to continue at the medical school, and not just in healthcare disparities, but healthcare reform and other social issues. And just to give you an idea of Dr. Bettencourt's real commitment to this, today's his birthday, but he came out. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you.